notre quotidien, c'est sur Taïwan. Located on the edges of your radio static, you've stumbled upon the lost signal. Tonight's episode is brought to you by Blackmagic Period Underscore Beauty, a new Instagram page home to JC Johnson, an upcoming makeup artist in Northern Idaho. For all your cosmetic needs, follow Blackmagic Period Underscore Beauty on Instagram and file an appointment today. Tonight, we bring you Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's the Lost Special. All right. All right, go ahead. <coughs> Ladies and gentlemen. Uh, am I speaking correctly? Yep, right there, sir. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen. This broadcast will never be completed. I'm going to tell you a story. The story involves a number of famous and influential people here, as well as abroad. These people have received warning from me, and I am sure all of them are making it a point to listen to me now. I shall not name these great, these rich, these influential gentlemen, until my story is over. They will recognize the story. They will remember me. They will take the necessary steps for my reprieve. I shall expect a full pardon and safe conduct to a neutral country. These are my terms. I shall expect word of this to be brought to this studio during the broadcast. But, as I have warned you, this broadcast will never be finished. You will never hear those names. It is certain my price will be paid. I am presently under sentence of death for my activities in the matter of refueling German submarines in the Caribbean. My full confession has been reproduced in the popular press. You have read it, and you know the details. It is the least ingenious of my exploits and my first failure. So much for it. The story I shall tell you tonight occurred many years ago, but concerns, as I have said, many now living. It will interest you, I hope. I know it will interest them. Very well. On the 3rd of June, 1925, in Liverpool, a man who gave his name as Monsieur Louis Cartal asked to see Mr. James Bland, the superintendent of the London and West Coast Railway. He was a small man, this character, middle-aged, dark, and with a stoop so pronounced that it suggested some deformity of the spine. He was accompanied by a friend, a man of imposing physique, who from his swarthy complexion was probably either a Spaniard or a South American. Turned out later, his name was Gomez. One peculiarity was observed in him. He carried in his left hand, fastened to his wrist by a strap, a small leather dispatch case. 
No importance was attached to this fact at the time, but later events endowed it with much significance. Monsieur Cartal was shown to Mr. Bland's office while his companion remained outside. How do you do, Monsieur? My name is Louis Cartal. Yes, sir. What can I do for you? I have just arrived from Central America this afternoon. It is extremely urgent that I reach Paris without a moment's delay. Paris, huh? Oh, that's too bad. You just missed the London Express. I'm not interested in the London Express. Could you provide me with a special train? Uh, yes, I think that could be arranged. Oh? It's just it's quite an expensive proposition. Uh, money is of small importance, monsieur. Time is everything. If you can arrange a special for me in a hurry, you make your own terms. Very well. Mr. Hood, will you step over here a moment, please? Yes, Mr. Bland. Mr. Hood, here's our traffic manager, Mr. Cartel. Hood, I want you to arrange a special for him. He's going to Paris. How's the line? Can you fix him up in a hurry? Uh, well, yes, I believe so, Mr. Bland. Line is clear through Manchester and engine 247, the Rockdale, is on the tracks now. It could be ready, say, 15 minutes. Good. Who's available for the trip? Uh, engineer? Smith, sir. And I can put James McPherson on as conductor. Oh, well, there you are, Mr. Cartel. Simple as that. Tend to everything right away, will you, Hood? Yes, sir. Uh, these men. Monsieur Smith and, uh... McPherson? Yes, McPherson. Are they trustworthy? Oh yes, of course. McPherson's been with the company for years, and I'm sure Smith, although new, is an expert engineer. Ah, uh, bien. Thank you, Monsieur. Deeply indebted. You have been most considerate. At 4.31 exactly, by the station clock, the special train with Cartel and Gomez steamed out of the Liverpool station. The line at that time was clear, and there should have been no stoppage before Manchester. At a quarter after six, considerable surprise and some consternation was caused among the officials at Liverpool by the receipt of a wire from Manchester to say that the special had not yet arrived. An inquiry directed at once to St. Helens, which is a third of the way between the two cities, elicited the following reply. James Bland, Superintendent, Liverpool. Special passed here at 4.52. Well up to time. Douster, St. Helens. The wire was received at 6.40. At 6.50, a second message was received from Manchester. No sign of special as advised by you. And then ten minutes later, a third, more bewildering. Presume some mistake as to the proposed running of the special. Local train from St. Helens time to follow it has just arrived and has seen nothing of it. Kindly wire advices, Manchester. The matter was assuming the most amazing aspect, although in some respects the last telegram was a relief to the authorities at Liverpool. If an accident had occurred to the special, it seemed hardly possible that the local train could have passed down the same line without observing it. And yet? What was the alternative? Where could the train be? A telegram was dispatched to each of the stations between St. Helens and Manchester, 
and the superintendent and his traffic manager waited in the utmost suspense at the instrument for which the series of replies. The answers came back in order of questions, which was the order of the stations beginning at St. Helens. Special passed here at 5 o'clock, Collins Green. Special passed here at 6 past 5, Earlstown. Special passed here at 510, Newton. Special passed here at 520, Canyon Junction. No special train has passed here, Barton Moss. Hood, this is unique in my 30 years of experience. I can't understand it, Mr. Bland. Special has gone wrong between Canyon Junction and Barton Moss. And yet there's no sighting between the two stations. The special must have run off the rails, jumped the track. But how could the 450 parliamentary pass over the same line without seeing it? I mean, there's no alternative, Hood. Absolutely must be so. It's possible the local may have observed something that would throw some light on the matter. We'll wire to Manchester for more information and to Kenyon Junction with instructions that the line be examined intently as far as Barton Moss. But the answer from Manchester came within a few minutes. No news of missing special. Driver and guard of local train positive no accident between Kenyon Junction and Barton Moss. Line quite clear. And no sign of anything unusual. Manchester. This is lunacy, Hood. Does a train vanish into thin air in England in broad daylight? The thing's preposterous. An engine, a tender, a car, five human beings, all lost on a straight line of railway. It's impossible. A month elapsed, during which both the police and the company prosecuted their inquiries without the slightest success. Mr. Bland, at the end of this period, offered his resignation, and it was accepted. The affair remained unsolved. A reward was offered and a pardon promised in case of crime, but they were both unclaimed. Every day, the public opened their papers with the conviction that so grotesque a mystery would at last be solved. But week after week passed by, and a solution remained as far off as ever. But then a new and most unexpected incident occurred. This was nothing less than the receipt by Mrs. McPherson of a letter from her husband Jane McPherson, who had been conductor of the missing train. The letter, dated July 5, 1925, was posted from Mozambique, Portuguese East Africa, and came to hand upon July 14th. My dear wife, I've been thinking a great deal, and I find it very hard to give you up. I try to fight against it, for it will always come back to me. I send you some money, which will change into 20 English pounds. This should be enough to bring you here. Things are very difficult with me at present, and I'm not very happy, finding it so hard to give you up. So no more at present, from your loving husband, James McPherson. For a time, it was confidently anticipated that the letter would lead to the clearing up of the whole incident. As directed, Mrs. McPherson sailed to Portuguese East Africa. She stayed in Mozambique for some time, but heard nothing from the missing man. Finally, she returned to Liverpool. And so the matter stood, and has continued to stand right up to the present moment. Incredible as it may seem, Nothing has transpired during those 18 years which has shed the least light upon the extraordinary disappearance of the special train which contained Monsieur Caratal and his companion Mr. Gomez, and McPherson the conductor, Smith the engineer, 
and a fireman named Slater. And now, after all this time, I shall clear up the entire affair. And unless I hear from those so highly respectable gentlemen, who are my employers, and who are completely implicated in the crime, unless I hear from them before I'm finished, their names will be revealed on this broadcast. Take final warning, gentlemen. You know I mean what I say. If you are smart, you are at this moment arranging my reprieve. I must remind you, time is short. You have just... 16 minutes. <laughs> now for the interest of my other listeners, I shall resume the story of the lost special. In a word, there was a famous trial in Paris in the year of 1925. Perhaps you recall it. In connection with a monstrous scandal. A scandal in politics and finance. How monstrous that scandal was, we can never know, except by such confidential agents as myself. At stake were the honor and careers of many of the chief men of Europe and the United States. A secret committee was formed to manage the business. Some subscribed to the committee hardly understood the objects, but others understood very well, and they can rely upon it that I have not forgotten their names. Do you think I can forget your names, gentlemen? You pillars of the community? Great, rich, respected, honorable men? <laughs> Do you remember that day in May 1925? The fashionable country club? Remember? And the golf game that was played there that spring morning? Ladies and gentlemen, that was the strangest golf game I have ever played in the history of this world. Old track. Look at that drive. I've been playing badly all morning. Uh, you topped it, Senator. Perhaps you're a little nervous. I beg your pardon? May I join your game? Uh, well, I'm... I'm not sure that... Not sure of what? Me? I promise you, gentlemen, you can be very sure of me. I'm the man you're supposed to meet. The distinguished congressman here can vouch for me. Yeah, he's the one, all right. This is Delanac. Oh, my name is not really Dillonac, gentlemen. But I am sure that it bothers you no less than it does me. Besides, there is no need for introductions. I know everyone present by sight and, uh, reputation. <clears throat> my drive, I believe. Thank you. Ah, uh, not so good. Two hundred and, uh, what? About fifty yards? I hope I'm not going to continue in this way. You're, uh... You're sure we can talk safely here, Frank? Set your mind at ease. We shan't be overheard in the middle of a golf course. There is no convenient hiding place here for dictaphones. Even in the rough, where I notice you're playing a great part of your game, Senator. You must be nervous this morning. I must say, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Here, here. It's not the superlative course you're accustomed to on your own enormous California estate, sir. But it's going to have to serve our particular purpose. Oh, by the way, let me compliment you on the way you've had your syndicate of newspapers handle the recent strike situation. And that editorial which appeared under your own signature this morning. It's well calculated to stir up trouble with the labor. Please, please, let's, uh, let's get on with our business. Yes, I, uh, Mr. Delanac, 
At your service, sir. And may I suggest we continue our game? I know the absence of caddies is an inconvenience. Uh, Mr. Delanac, in June, a month from now, in Paris, there will be a most important trial. Yes. During its progress... Pardon me. Are you referring to the Sarinsky trial? Yes. You know about it, then. Well, certain interesting details I know something of. It's my business, after all, to keep myself informed about these matters. It's not for nothing that I'm known as the best provocateur in the West. This trial... I'm speaking in the utmost confidence, you understand. This trial could, if certain evidence were introduced, have a very serious effect upon the prestige and standing of some most important men. <laughs> I'm sure of it. In fact, it could even... You shivering, Senator. You find it cold out here? No, no. Get on with it, Frank. Get to the point, for heaven's sake. The evidence which one man could bring to the trial could ruin these men. Without it, the trial will collapse for want of facts. Mm-hmm. But if this one man arrives in Paris... You do not wish him to arrive in Paris. Gentlemen, you have come to the right man. This sounds indeed like the sort of thing which no one in the world can manage with such skill and success as myself. I must admit, however, my services come rather high. Money makes no difference. We have formed a group, a committee, and we have the command of an unlimited amount of money. Absolutely unlimited, you hear? Ah, good. Then you will name people and places now. Who is the gentleman whose appearance in Paris would cause such regrettable embarrassment? His name is Caratal. Louis Caratal. He knows everything. He has paper documents. All the evidence. Yes, I understand. And where is this Monsieur Caratal at present? Well, he's sailing from somewhere in Central America. Central America? Within the next few days. How much we know. Good. Good. Central America. I have an excellent man down there in Central America. Now this Caratal. You know anything about him? Personal habits? Oh. Uh, I know very little. He's a small man. Dark complexion. He has a bodyguard. Great big bruiser named, uh... Gomez, I believe. Let me see. Central America. That would be the Americano, Tropicana, or the Ritz. But those are my ships you just named. All commence at Liverpool, I believe. That's where the ships dock. And our famous trial is to begin in three weeks, huh? That would mean that Monsieur Cartal will go directly to London. And I imagine that once he's there, he'll be heavily guarded. I imagine it can't be a surprise to him that you gentlemen are not without, uh... Connections in the British capital. You see, this is not so simple as some of my other exploits. A simple assassination... Huh? There's your ball, sir. You're playing a Dunlop 38, aren't you? What? Uh, yes, yeah, yes, to be sure, yes. Quite. As I said, 
A simple assassination, the usual clumsy job, will not do here. The documents might, after all, be found. The bodyguard might survive somehow, and then... will have accomplished nothing. Isn't that so? Uh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Now, are you going to play? Yes, yes, of course, of course. Topped it again, I'm afraid. Shall we proceed? I already have two plans in my head, gentlemen. I have a plan for nailing him at the Central American port from which he embarks. I have a plan for his disposal aboard the ship. But, in each of these cases, I, De Lenac, will be unable to be present. So there is the chance of failure. I will think of a third plan, gentlemen. I shall sail immediately to Liverpool. On my way there, sitting on the deck in the May sunshine, I shall conceive my third plan. It must be something special. Very special. Ha <laughs> ha! There I am. Is this your famous water hazard? Well, I think a number seven iron will do it. And thus I undertook to bring out the complete destruction of Monsieur Cartal, his bodyguard companion Gomez, and his documents. Plan one was already out the window, as I found out the next day. De la Nac, White Sulphur Springs, Virginia. Baby Lou, unable to sleep past few nights. I've sent him to visit Aunt Henriette. We'll rejoin him on 21st. Love, Jenny. This telegram from Matagalfa conveyed to me the information that Caratal, possibly sensing danger, had moved from his hotel and gone to stay with friends until his ship sailed, so it was impossible to carry out the idea of the fire in the hotel. His ship leaving on the 21st was the Henriette. On my fourth day at sea, I heard from her. Delanac, Berengaria. Ship-to-ship -ship communication from Henriette, Tropicana Line. Presented Grace your box of chocolates. Luis has given up candy for Lent. Grace will want us all together for 29th birthday party. We'll be really special. Ref. This meant that the poison had been given to Gomez, the bodyguard, in an effort to get him, at least, out of the way. He had been unable to succumb to it. He'd thrown off the effects, as was evidenced by the report that we would all be together on the 29th. Now... Caratel had refused to eat the food containing the poison. So much for plan two, which was not worthy of me anyway since there was always the possibility of the bodies being found in the ocean. The man Gomez was carrying the documents in a dispatch case strapped to his wrist. <laughs> and I must tell you something now. I was glad. Glad, mind you, that we had failed so far. For the plan I had conceived on the night I arrived in Liverpool was so magnificent so absolutely unprecedented in the annals of crime that I owed it to myself, to my employers, and to history to carry it through. The inspiration came from the words in the code telegram which indicated that Caratal would arrive in Liverpool and hire a special train where to convey him to London. My British agent, Mr. Moore, and I contrived to buy over several officials on the railway. Now, here begins the story. First, the division head who helped us employ James McPherson, whom we contrived to be conductor of any special train we designated. Then further, at a sum that would make them independent for life, we bought over an engine driver named Oswald Smith and the fireman John Slater. These men, we arranged with the division head, would be assigned to whatever special train was hired by Cartal. On the afternoon of June 3rd, as I was sitting in my room at the inn at Barton Moss, the call I had been waiting for came through. 
It was McPherson reporting. Hello, Mr. Delanac. We should be leaving in a few minutes. Hmm. He's hired a special. Good. Smith will be engine driver and Slater fireman. And of course, I'll be in charge. What about Moore? Will he be aboard? Afraid not, sir. He even tried the story about having to reach his sick wife and all, but Caratal would have none of it. He said, though, sir, that it didn't matter. It doesn't matter. What time will you pass Kenyon Junction? Let me see, sir. Yeah, if we leave in the next few minutes, we should be there at 5.10. 5.10. 49-minute run, sir. 49 minutes. I can make it, but delay all you can before you start. Yes, sir. Guess it's all up to you from now on. Best of luck, sir. Nah. Here they come, sir. Goodbye. And now I went to work. Everything had been prepared for days before, and only the finishing touches were needed. The sidetrack, just there before Barton Moss, leading to the abandoned Heartsease mine, had once joined the main line, but it had been disconnected when the mine had been worked out some years before. We had only to replace a few rails and to connect it once more. With my small but confident band of workers, we had everything ready well before the special arrived. And when it did arrive, it ran off upon the small sideline so easily that the jolting of the switch points appears to have been entirely unnoticed by the two travelers. Now, I had our special train upon the small line, which leads, or used to lead, to the abandoned mine. You will ask how it is that no one saw the train upon this unused line. I answer that along its entire length it runs through a deep cutting, and that, unless someone had been on the edge of that cutting, would not have seen it. There was someone on the edge of that cutting. I was there. And now, I will tell you what I saw. The moment the train was fairly on the sidelines, Smith slowed down the engine, and then, having turned it on full speed ahead, he and McPherson with the Slater the fireman sprang off before it was too late. It may be that it was this slowing down which first attracted the attention of the travelers, but the train was running at top speed before their heads appeared at the open window. It makes me smile to think how bewildered they must have been. What a catch must have come to their breath as it flashed upon them that it was not Manchester that was awaiting for them, but death. The train was now running at frantic speed, rolling and rocking over the rotten, rusty line, while the wheels made a frightful screaming sound upon the corroded surface. I was close to them, and I could see their faces. Caratal was praying, I think. There was something like a rosary dangling out of his hand. The other Gomez roared like a bull, but was drowned out by the incredible noise of the train. He saw me standing on the bank, and Rudy realized that he couldn't be heard. He beckoned to me like a madman, tearing at his wrist and hurling the dispatch box out the window in my direction. Of course, his meaning was obvious. Here was the evidence that they would promise to be silent if their lives were spared. It would have been very agreeable if it could have been done so. But business is business. Besides, the train was now as much beyond our control as it was theirs. He ceased his howling and gesturing when the train rattled around the curve and they saw the black mouth of the mine yawning before them. They were struck silent by what they saw yet they could not withdraw their heads. The sight seemed to have paralyzed them. I had wondered how the train running at a great speed would take the pit, and I was much interested in watching it. The 
One of my colleagues who had joined me there thought it actually would jump it. And indeed, it was not very far from doing so. It leaped into the air and seemed to hang suspended for a moment. The funnel flew off into the air and then the van to the car and the engine were all smashed up into one jumble which choked the mouth of the great pit. Then something gave way in the middle and the whole mass of iron, coal, fittings, wheels, woodwork, and cushions crumbled together and crashed into the mine. It was perfect. The deep muddy water standing in the bottom of the pit 200 feet below responded to the intense heat of the engine boilers. It hissed loudly and blew great bubbles of black mire into the air. At the same time, the walls of the pit, loosened by the impact of the train as it struck the opposite side, gave way, and a mighty avalanche of rock and dirt thundered down upon the wreckage to the train as it settled with a low hissing sigh, and it was covered up forever by mud and mire. The vapor hanging in the air shredded off into thin small wisps. And all was quiet again in the heart ceased mine. <laughs> and now, having carried out our plans so successfully, it remained only to leave no trace behind us. Our little band of workers at the other end had already ripped up the rails and disconnected the sideline, replacing everything as it had been before. We were equally busy at the mine. The lines which led to it were torn up and taken away. And then, without flurry, but without delay, we all made our way out of the country, most of us to Paris, my English agent to Manchester, and McPherson to East Africa. A word in passing about McPherson who was foolish enough to write his wife and tell her to meet him in Mozambique. Naturally, we took steps to ensure that this meeting would never come about. I have sometimes thought it would be a kindness to write to Mrs. McPherson and to assure her that there is no impediment to her marrying again. But of the lost special, let the English papers of that date tell how thoroughly we had done our work and how completely we had thrown the cleverest of their detectives off our track. You'll remember that Gomez threw his bag of papers out the window, and I need not say that I secured that bag and brought them to my employers. It may interest my employers now, however, to learn that out of that bag I took one or two little papers as a souvenir of the occasion. I had no wish to read the information obtained by these papers, but it is now... Oh! Less than a minute before my broadcast is over. <coughs> and I have received no word. It is the final hour. I see, at the other end of the studio, the engineer, waving his hands at me that my time is almost up. Well, I gave you warning. You had your chance, gentlemen. Very well. Now, I shall reveal your names. The first name I reveal is that of Charles Fosters. Stop that man! What is it? Stop him! He's got a gun! Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, with the trying murder, I want you to hear these names quickly. I know you will avenge me. The names... He shot him! There he goes! Delanek! Delanek, can you hear me? Are you alright? Bill, play something! Play something! Quick! Theme! Curtain music! Anything! 
returning now to the edges of your radio static. This has been The Lost Signal. Follow us on Twitter at The Lost Signal 1 and Instagram at The Lost Signal Podcast. Also, follow and rate us on iTunes. Thank you, and good night. <laughs>